Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And finally, we are making use of the uh, masterpiece term in our introduction. Finally. I mean, it's, it's been, a, been while. a while, yeah. I, a while. This is probably the uh, the second film we've covered that I've actually gave five stars to. Um, I mean, not kind of Nightmare on because that was an original versus remake episode. Um, before we continue, though, we have had a bit of uh, dodgy weather here in the UK today. So uh, you might hear that at some point if it picks up again. And uh, our, our song neighbours have been loud again, yeah. as, uh, as always. It's seemingly calmed down for the moment. It's uh, Storm Sierra. So uh, <laughs> I won't make a uh, Sierra the mus- musician-based joke. You sure you don't want to? No, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. No, okay, no. well... I was tempted to, but no, no, I'm all right. I'm we all right. are continuing our Valentine's special, where this is our second and final Valentine's special episodes. And uh, whereas last week we focused on a film that was set around Valentine's Day, this time we've gone for a more romantic and uh, rather sexy film. Ooh, very sexy. Uh, <laughs> this is 1983's The Hunger, directed by Tony Scott, who has mainly directed uh, action films other than this, such as uh, yeah. Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, True Romance, Unstoppable. He did some commercials, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah. So he, he got his start in commercials and uh, music videos. Uh, and that is very evident in The Hunger. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, this is on a budget of $1,832,898. Um, Oddly specific there. Very specific. <laughs> and yeah, and this is just a, a fucking great film. Um, you last few weeks we've just had trash to talk about. But uh, I mean, even like before we've had films that have been surprisingly enjoyable that they're obviously not to the level of this. This is just fine filmmaking and you know as i said masterpieces um of genre cinema this actually turns a genre on its head uh, the whole vampire subgenre because this is very different to other vampire films yeah it's definitely a product of its time yeah i'd say definitely screams 80s yeah very very much 1983 um all throughout um yeah and i like i like when films do that I like when they take old sort of ideas, you know, and and vampirism is, mm. you know, one that has sort of creeped up um, decade after decade. Yeah, and I think the 80s is probably the best time for vampire films, because as well as this, you always had the likes of Friday Night and The Lost Boys as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, all these films that tried to be, you know, hip and cool for its time... Um, uh, it's very evident, and I think eighties vampire films are just really it works best. And it's not really until um, last year that I saw a vampire film that has stood out um, since something that would have been released around that time. I mean, obviously, there's Bram Stoker's Dracula that was a good film. Um, Thirty Days of Night that was really good, but I mean, a real standout feels original, feels you know like it is something new. Um, but then, upon watching this, the film I was talking about previously was Bliss, um, which we watched at Fright Fest last year. Um, but upon watching this, I could see that I was actually very influenced by this. Yeah, there's quite a few correlations between, the, uh, particularly the story mm. um, of between this film and, and Bliss. I would say another vampire film that really turns the genre on its head would be George A. Romero's Martin. 
That's true. That's true. Um, I, f- I love that film, and, and I would probably say it's one of my favourite vampire yeah. films. Um, is it a vampire film? Is it not? You know, it, it's left for us to decide, which is sort of the whole point of Martin. Mm. Um, but that's a fantastic film. Which is also say. something that uh, this film does as well, because the word vampire is not used once in this film. No, no, and it, it's not... When we say vampire, we're not talking Christopher Lee with fangs, um, you know, biting on the neck of some buxom Victorian ladies. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's not like that. It, it, there's similarities. There's the whole idea of feeding on blood to, to stay alive. Mm. And, uh, you know, the people are cut at the neck. Um but other than that, it 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 does definitely turns it on on its head. This there's always there's two types of vampires. You have got your um, romantic slash erotic slash, you know, um, love story vampires, um, and then obviously you've got your psychopathic murdering vampires. So, I mean, for the latter, the best example I can think of right now is probably uh, Thirty Days of Night. Um, that's a lot more. Um, vampires are there to kill you, um, you know. But then you get something like this. Uh, it is a great example of how the romantic side of uh, vampirism should be portrayed. I think. Yeah, the the whole idea of the vampire is has always been steeped in sort of um, eroticism, and you know, it it gives when you look at sort of um, not not just Bram Stoker's novel, but the Universal monsters and. You know, Bela Lugosi um, and his portrayal of Dracula, it leads itself to maybe being a little sexier. You know, I, I can't imagine anyone getting off on the mummy or, you know, the the werewolf. But I, I feel like vampires keep so much of their look and that's mm. the whole point of it. Yeah. That it can lead itself to an eroticism that other monster movies can't. Yeah. Yeah, that's so that's very true. At the end true. of the day, a vampire is a monster. That's how we've seen them. That's how they're portrayed. They are monsters, and you know, I wouldn't call this a creature feature by any sort of uh, count. But um, you know, they they are, you know, non non human. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. It is also uh, what's interesting is I think this. If it's not the first, it must be at least the second uh, LGBT film we've covered. And obviously, you know, we're an LGBTQ plus podcast. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is quite fitting, really. Yeah, it, it is. I feel like the LGBT aspects and the relationship between two women in this case um, isn't really played up. I don't think. Um, no, and do you mean as in it wasn't a massive deal made about it? There wasn't a massive deal made about it, but I didn't think the whole idea of them being um, lesbians, mm. uh, I didn't think that was the point. That wasn't no, the point. No, and that's what I really liked about it, because, I mean, obviously with the time it was released as well, um, you know, this isn't really a time where, you know, homosexuality wasn't in every other film you know it's it's not like um it, it was a an ongoing thing so the fact that this decided to you know be quite graphic with um promoting homosexuality uh and then didn't make a big deal out of it you know i think that's uh i think that's a, a fantastic move on tony scott's behalf um i would say that to a certain extent 
Um, I, I think we'll get into it deeper as as the film goes on because it, it's hard. And, yeah. Unless we're describing. We'll go through uh, some trivia first. Um, speaking of um, said uh, lesbian relationship in the film, uh, the script originally called for Susan Sarandon to be drunk um, during the sex scene with um, with with her co-star Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve. I'll get the pronunciation right sometimes today. Um, and uh, yeah, so they wanted her to be drunk, but uh, Susan Sarandon said, "No, fuck this. Um, if I'm going to do this sex scene, I'm going to do it sober because I want my character to choose to have sex with uh, Catherine Deneuve." Yeah. Which is fair play to Susan Sarandon, you know. Um, David Bowie, uh, absolute icon um, in every aspect of the word. Oh, yeah. Uh, fashion, film icon, music icon, just one of the coolest human beings to have ever lived. Absolutely. Um, learned to play the cello for his uh, music scenes. <laughs> And he also stood on the George Washington Bridge every night whilst filming this film and uh, screamed every punk rock song that he knew to make sure that his voice was hoarse enough um, for the film. okay. Which, again, bravo, David Bowie. Yeah, going all out. Yeah. Um, he actually co-wrote a song with uh, Iggy Pop that appears in this film. I don't know if it's specifically for this film, but um, yeah, that appears as well, which we'll mention when it comes to it. Um, the costume designer, Melena um, Cananero disappeared to get some fabric for David Bowie's handkerchief from Rome um, whilst filming. And they're filming in London, so that's a bit of a spontaneous trip right there to go and get some fabric. Yeah, I feel that definitely an emphasis on the style yeah. and the look and making sure everything is spot on the f- aesthetically. Yeah, the fashion is fucking stunning in this oh, it film. Is, yeah. It really is. Um... David Bowie was actually intimidated by uh, Catherine Deneuve. Yeah, I, I don't um, see why not. Yeah. She was, uh, I mean, at the time, she was a, a real icon. Uh, you know, the same as, as Bowie. I mean, this is quite early on mm. for Susan Sarandon. Um, but Catherine Deneuve, you know, she'd been in Belle de Jour and Repulsion. She'd been Oscar nominated. And, you know, she was a real fine... French actress, very, very continental. Yeah, I could see why she'd be quite intimidating and, and drop-dead gorgeous, even if she was a little older during this film. Um, but still, and still beautiful to this day. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, and I think that's one thing the main three um, cast members have in common is they all ooze sex appeal. Like, yeah. even Susan Sarandon. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, apparently David Bowie and Susan Sarandon got on very well to the point, and there's a bit of tea, to the point they had an affair whilst filming. Bloody hell. I know. Although I kind of, I've always assumed that Susan Sarandon, uh, Susan Sarandon, David Bowie has just slept with everybody. Yeah. I mean, like, wasn't there rumours about him and Mick Jagger as well? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that didn't really surprise me too much, but, um, you know, a bit of gossip. Oh, but also a bit of uh, gossip with uh, David Bowie is uh, Ridley Scott, Tony's brother, obviously director of Alien. Um, he was originally set to direct this film, but he passed on it when David Bowie was announced. Oh. Oh, what's going on there? A bit harsh. Um, and uh, last bit of trivia. Uh, oh, actually, Rob... Well, I mean, we probably should mention this is based on the novel by uh, Whitley Stryber, and there's uh, there's two sequels to it as well. Okay. Um, this de- had a very different ending originally. Well, it, I mean, it re- ended a little earlier, 
Um, but an extra film, uh, extra film, MGM wanted an extra scene added in at the end for the possibility of a sequel. Because uh, it was in the 80s, and as we all know, every 80s horror film had to have a sequel. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is one of the few that didn't, and uh, which is quite shocking, because did it, it actually well? it made its money back. Did it? Yeah, it did well. I don't know uh, critically if it did well, because it has become a cult film now. Yeah. Um, having its incredibly underrated with a 6.7 on IMDb, I think it deserves... More that than is, that. That is low. Should easily be in the sevens at mm. least. Um but yeah, the the original ending wouldn't have had any sort of uh continuity for a sequel. Uh but they changed it, added an extra scene, and Susan Sarandon hated the ending because she believed that is our neighbours being loud again. What the fuck was that? Um what was that for? I have no idea. Anyway, um so <laughs> yeah, they um they changed the ending, and there is actually a sequel in development now. But Susan Sarandon hated the ending because it goes against everything that they were trying to stand for, um, with like the uh, the messages of addiction, um, yeah. and how at the end, you know, her character fighting, you know, in in a in a metaphorical way, she fought addiction and um, you know wanted to end it. But no, MGM didn't want that. They just wanted a sequel, more money. Yeah, which I think sometimes we have to remember that, you know, the film business is a business. Yeah. So if if we try and... I mean, I'd love to have seen... Some points. I'd, I'd love to have seen a sequel in the 80s from, you know, with the same cast. That yeah. would have been great. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, it is in development now. Um, I assume Catherine... Uh, Catherine... Deneuve. Why the fuck am I forgetting how to say her surname already? <laughs> this is really... You know, really positive, isn't it? 15 minutes into the episode. Um, <laughs> I assume she'll be returning. Um, or if they're going to cast someone who looks like her, maybe. Depends how they go with the sequel. It depends how they, they go with it. Um, and, and who it's focused. I, I suppose Miriam, uh, which is the character that Catherine Deneuve plays, she would be the focus. Mm. Really. Um, but... Mm, I don't know. There was a spin-off TV series. There was, yeah, in the early 2000s. Mm. Uh, it was like a anthology series uh, similar to Tales of the Crypt and um, Tales of the Dark Side and Freddy's Nightmares. And it was just about sexy vampire yeah. stories, really. Hosted by Charles Dance for the first season and then David Bowie for the second season. I'd never heard of it. No, until no, me now, neither. Until today. Um, so, um, who knows how good or bad that was. Well, getting into the film, the plot, and the very false plot, is a love triangle develops between a beautiful yet dangerous vampire, her cellist companion, and a geron- gerontologist. There we go. Okay. What, Words of gerontologist. Let me have a look. What have you written down? Show me. Gerontologist? Geron- yeah. Geront- Geront- gerontologist. This is what Susan Sarandon's job is in this film. There we go. Um, but a love triangle is not true. No, it is not no, a love triangle. No. So, thanks for the false advertising on DB. Yeah, you, you'll find out why as we go through the story, but that that is very false. Yeah. So we open with Bella Lugosi's Dead by Bauhaus and Bauhaus actually performing the song 
as in the uh, listed in the cast as disco group. <laughs> disco. Um, in a it, in a nightclub in uh, supposedly New York, but it's actually London. And yeah. um, this is filmed in. You wouldn't have guessed, really, to be fair. No, you know, no. it does look very New Yorkish. It's it's a very eighties nightclub, um, and we get introduced to uh, John, played by David Bowie, and uh, and Miriam, played by uh, Catherine Deneuve. Did I say it right at that time? Yes. Yes! And the, the song goes on quite a while. It does. So we definitely see the music video yeah. influence It there. feels like a music video it during does. the scene. It does feel like um, a music video. It's very, for me, reminiscent of uh, Embody Double. When you have Frankie... <clears throat> when you have Frankie goes to Hollywood and they do, like, the whole mm. music, you know, the whole song... And, yeah, it feels like uh, um, we start right on a music video. The lead singer of Bauhaus is singing to the camera. Um, yeah. Uh, behind a, some sort of fencing. Mm. Um, and there are people in the nightclub dancing, very looking very new wave, very it's goth. They're all so... wearing sunglasses indoors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's cool. It's I like so it. It's so cool. I love this opening <clears throat> credit sequence. Um, we get some hard cuts uh, between the nightclub and uh, John and Miriam driving uh, with a random couple from the nightclub, taking them home with them. Um, and, and I've got here in my notes, minutes in and this film is incredible and makes smoking look cool. Yeah, there's a lot of smoking. Uh, they're smoking every five minutes. Uh, and always, if, always having a ciggy. Probably more than that, actually. I'd say every few minutes they're smoking in this film. Oh, yeah. It, it doesn't look like a cigarette commercial, but, I, I mean, it looks incredibly cool. Lots of sort of <laughs> up-close, lighting a cigarette, smoking, very beautiful people, not saying much, just smoking a ciggy. Yeah. And then, before we know, within this first five minutes, we get some boobs... We do. Um, the tits come out uh, in the first five minutes, and then we get some hard cuts with some monkeys. Um, but, like, fast cuts, um, should I say. Uh, it's uh, it's very interwining between the two. And uh, then the monkey, one of them starts killing the other one, and then we also see the nightclub couple being killed by uh, John and Miriam. But they do this by using their, uh, I believe it's called an ankh, um, it's Unk. like a pendant necklace. Unk. Unk. There we go. Uh, they slit their throats with them. And then uh, after this, we are introduced to Susan Sarandon, who plays Sarah. And uh, she finds the dead monkey. Lights a cig to investigate. She does. Of course. Very upset, so she lights a ciggy. And uh, then Bowie, Bowie burns the bodies and has a shower with, uh, with Catherine. Yeah, so these couple uh, we're assuming they're a couple miriam and, and john they they pick up this other couple at the club and take them home and end up killing them um in their throats isn't it yeah you know which is kind of the way that everybody gets killed in this film it's not a particularly gory film not a particularly there's blood but it, it's some good practical effects as well yeah yeah but it's not it's not you know Force to the wall, gore. No. Um, so yeah, so very much sex and death and blood intertwined yeah. from the get go. Um, and I, I think these hard cuts between 
the 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 people and the monkeys. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure what it's saying. What do you what do you think that means? Because, I think because the whole idea of the the people acting like the monkeys act mm. is you know particularly in the first half of the film brought up a fair bit. Yeah. Um, but I'm not. I I, I don't know what that means or. What do you think he's trying to say? Well, they spoke a lot about the aging of the monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was very much intertwined with um, the aging of David Bowie's character a little later on. So I think they're just trying to develop connections and similarities between these characters, um, between the the monkey and the and the vampires. Um, why? I'm, I'm not sure. Like I said, I think it's all to do with the connection between their aging because essentially the monkeys begin aging like five years within a minute or something yeah. like that later on and then at the same time so does David Bowie and then with the monkey killing another monkey at the same time as they're killing this other couple uh, I think that's where the connection comes in they're essentially the same characters yeah I think maybe you know the whole idea of us being evolved from yeah apes. it's definitely to do with evolution so the whole idea is that you know through you know all these years of evolution we're still just as primitive as we always were mm. now i've not read a book on this film i've never heard tony scott or, or the author of the novel say any of this it's just my interpretation but i feel that because the film is so fancy and the people in it are so fancy and they've mm. got all these beautiful things and they're gorgeous people and they're dressed to the nines constantly but at the end of the day they are all feeding off of each other um so it's it's the idea of you know the the one monkey eats the other monkey and it's devouring each other yeah to live and it don't matter how nice your car is how you know, beautiful, you play the piano or you could be a posh old cellist or, or whatnot. You, we all have that basic instinct to survive. Yeah. And that comes from the ape that we all were to begin with. Yeah. I know it's a bit of a this long-winded is gonna be our idea, deepest episode. But, I, <laughs> but, I, do, but I, I feel like that that's maybe what they go in. Oh for yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is I think so. That the holiday that we all eventually age, mm. and we die, and that's a certain thing, and it always was, and it always will be, um, and it's, you know, um, the eighties was a very much scene. I mean, I didn't live through the eighties. But looking back, it's very much seen as dog eat dog. Yeah. And the survival of the fittest. And, you know, you watch a film like, you know, Wall Street, where, you know, money and power and greed, you know, in the 80s was seen as, you know, the good thing is what you needed. You needed to be top dog or you were eaten. Mm-hmm. You were nothing. And it's something similar. And then we... Um, I feel like there's a bit of a connection to Hellraiser as well. I've noticed a few Hellraiser similarities in this as well. And the idea of uh, within Hellraiser, uh, Uncle Frank f- 
feeds off of other people yeah. to live, uh-huh. to survive. And I feel like this is something that began in this film, because obviously Hellraiser was much later, uh, about four years later. Yeah. So not that much later, but four years later. But the whole idea of devouring the weak mm-hmm. to live... I I think that's what this film is going for. I've... And that's the whole idea of the vampire. Yeah. That's what vampires always were, you know. Dracula had to drink blood to survive. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Clive Barker's ever seen this film. I mean, I assume he has. And cause if, I, if I was to assume, I'd think that he was very influenced by this film because not even just Hellraiser, I also noticed a few similarities to Candyman mm. as well. The whole... Um, you know, the whole Sarah and Miriam relationship kind of reminded me a lot of Candyman, like the way when they first meet, how she hears her talking, but she's not actually speaking. And then essentially she is, she is her victim, but in a very romantic, twisted kind of way. Yeah, there's um, definitely, within Candyman, there's a very underlying sexual tension. Mm. Uh, the hunger sort of puts it more out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very much so. Uh, but yeah, I, I do see those similarities. But yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> back to where we were in the shower with uh, with John and Miriam. There's some ass grabbing. Miriam gets her tits out. Um, more boobs within the first 10 minutes now. Um, and Sarah's studying the monkeys um, and what's just happened. Uh, that's intertwined with um, John smoking. Again, David Bowie looking amazing, smoking <laughs> at, at a rainy window. <laughs> Um, <laughs> looks like Spats starts singing Warwick Avenue by Duffy. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's that is a random reference. No one's gonna get that. Um, well, sad song from the eighties with uh, Rainy Window. I need an example. Oh, oh God, I'm sure there's some. We'll uh, we'll go with something we're going to reference quite a lot through this. Total Eclipse of the Heart. There we go. This is very much okay. This is the film embodiment of uh, Total Eclipse of the we Heart by Bonnie this. Tyler. And I, I I said to Gary, I said, aren't you getting Total Eclipse of the Heart vibes? And he's like, oh, not not really. And then there's a scene with dubs. <laughs> and floaty curtains. Float, oh, floaty curtains. For there's a lot of floaty curtains. So many floaty curtains in this film. And dubs as well. And Gary's like, yeah, okay. It's totally, totally <laughs> clips to the heart. Very, very much so. Well, back to Susan. She uh, looks at, her, at the monkey who's looking a little aggressive now. She's like, don't you snarl at me, you evil son of a bitch. And I'm still like, yes. <laughs> she absolutely slays the game in the Susan Sarandon. And it's really up my appreciation for her so much. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I loved her before this, but even more so now. What sort of have you seen Susan Sarandon? I mean, I saw her in... Uh, Atlantic City and she was a bit she was quite sexy in that Rocky Horror Picture Show which was kind of a subtle um, kind of sexy role yeah, in a way that was, that was um, kind of sexy wasn't it that yeah wasn't, that wasn't really seeing Susan Sarandon as a highly sexual woman or no. in a um, sexual way if anything you know? it was her trying to get to that point yeah yeah yeah, because she was very dowdy to begin with in, yeah. in Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it was always tongue in cheek and and, and comedy. Uh, Bad Mum's Christmas. Bad Mum's Christmas. <laughs> I think we need to watch maybe a bit more of Susan we do, Sarandon. We do. I mean, I've seen Definitely after and this. Louise uh, and Search, but she's a fantastic actress. She is. Yeah. I I definitely I, I definitely need to watch more um, Catherine Deneuve because I, this is the only film I've seen of hers. We watched Belle de Jour together. Yeah. Did we? Yes, we did. I didn't rate it on IMDb then. It didn't come up. Oh. 
Well, you should have. Well, I'll have to do that after this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and um, the one where she's in, the, um, she's tied to a tree, getting whipped. Oh, okay. Surely you remember that. Are she, you sure we watched this together? Yeah, she decides that she's uh, going to become a prostitute during the day whilst her husband's out at work because she's bored. Oh. Oh, can't fantastic rem- can't remember a lot about this. I have to watch that one again. Oh, definitely remind me about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, like Susan Susan has a go at a monkey, and um, and then we get some Victorian era flashbacks for uh, John and Miriam, which kind of shows you just how old these vampires are. And uh, yeah, uh, not apologies. It's not Victorian. Is it really. not? No, it's probably more eighteenth century. So the very um, obviously, Catherine Deneuve's a French woman. Um, I believe this was a reference to the times, of, like Marie Antoinette. Um, so that that would sort of. Did you see the stylings? The, yeah. The big white hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, so very sort of Marie Antoinette. I think she said, uh, "How long had her and John been together? Is it two hundred years?" Yeah. So that would take you to seventeen late seventeen hundreds. Well, I'm just a dumbass today, clearly. No, <laughs> I just I was just explaining. Um yeah, they start watching uh Susan Sarandon having an interview on TV. Um she's got a book out, it turns it turns out, and uh, about the sort of the aging and uh she starts discussing about uh, children who have had a deformity where they look like they're in their seventies and they're actually in their teens if i remember right yeah no that's correct yeah so she's a doctor and she she specializes she's a gerontologist yes thank you (laughs) whatever the fuck that is i'm assuming (laughs) that's a doctor who specializes in aging or um prolonging life uh which is what her book's about which is what her study's about which is what the study of the monkeys was was about um is her and you know sort of ways to uh, stay forever young that's yeah kind of her her thing and obviously that's interests john and miriam uh, which is why they're watching her on television and then alice turns up who's a photographer and I, at first i didn't really get the uh, relationship that was going on between the three of them yeah um i think in the end i think uh, they must be her music teachers. Yeah, so Alice is a, a school kid. She's a photographer, a musician. She's a, a school kid, but she, she she loves taking photographs. So she's always taking photographs on a Polaroid camera. Yeah. Um, but she goes there twice weekly to learn to play the violin. Yes, she turns up, tells John that he looks awful, which is fucking rude and not true. Um, <laughs> well, it is kind of true, because he hasn't <laughs> slept in... Uh, a while has he so the the idea is that um john is deteriorating slowly at this point and that's what sort of comes to, to uh, yeah the foreground after this but he, he does you know he is looking a bit rough and he hasn't slept they have a they have a little uh jam together as uh, as musicians would call it um oh we've God. got um <laughs> Got Green Day for Christ's sake. We've got John on cello. We've got uh, Alice on the violin and Miriam on piano. Yes. And they're blasting out a uh, classical banger. Uh, (laughs) And then we see uh, what is really interesting to me, and this is why I think it really turns uh, the tropes of a vampire on the head, uh, is 
we get John looking in the mirror and he actually has a reflection. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is, again, you know, as well as not the word vampire not being said in this film, they also have reflections, which is also new, and they go out in daylight as well. Yeah, and, and when Alice takes photographs, they, yeah. they appear in the photographs. Yeah, they're in the photographs. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we see that, and then we go to uh, Sarah, who's doing a book signing, and uh, Miriam goes to meet her, and uh, that's when they have the moment where uh, Sarah thinks she hears her say something, and she's like, uh, you know, she thinks that she wants to talk to her, and then uh, Miriam confirms she does want to talk to her, and then it just kind of moves on. Uh, John's watching cartoons, <laughs> and his... His hair starts falling out, and uh, then they have he has a conversation with Miriam about who's going to be there for her when he dies, and uh, he dons a fucking incredible outfit with a hat, sunglasses, and a leather jacket, and uh, goes to see Sarah, and uh, speak about a book and uh, an aging. To which she tells him that he needs to wait for her. She's got some appointments, and I, she really doesn't want to talk to him. No, so she probably gets a lot of weirdos come to see her at the hospital. Um, So she kind of fobs him off. She feels sorry for him, though. Um, He's explaining that he's 30 years old, but it's, you know, um, growing. But um, he's getting liver spots at an alarming rate, and he's aging at an alarming rate, and she just thinks he's uh, a bit of a loon and sort of says, well, just leave him waiting and wait until he just goes. Because uh, she feels sorry for him. She doesn't want him chucked out or anything. Yeah, so um, he goes and waits in the waiting area. And we get, again, intertwining scenes between uh, John and the monkey. Um, this is the aggressive monkey. And he is aging rapidly fast. Like, uh, on a, another level. Yeah. Like, this is this scene is incredible the effects in this the makeup effects and everything is fantastic um he ages really really fast but so does this monkey and it's quite a disturbing scene with the monkey we see it die and rot um which is i couldn't tell was that during that scene or was that meant to be uh, a time lapse of the monkey during that scene during so that scene so that's even more disturbing yeah so it's intercut with uh john's yeah. aging yeah, so then that's the last time we see that connection between, you know, John and the monkey. Yeah, I think I think they, they sort of hinted at it at the beginning. They definitely showed it then. I think, you know, the, the point that I was making earlier, if that's what they were trying to make, well, yeah, cool, we got it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't keep going on about that. Yeah. Uh, and then we uh, get a chat between uh, Brad and Janet. Yes. So obviously, for anyone who's not aware, Season Surrounding plays Janet in uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show and her uh, fiancé is uh, Brad in that film and then in the sequel uh, Brad is played by Cliff DeYoung uh, and Janet is obviously played by someone different and uh, yeah Cliff DeYoung and Su- Susan Sarandon are a thing in this film yeah is this before uh, this I think it's before Shock Treatment was it? I th- this is after Shock oh. Treatment I think oh so that's even even better then oh, so it's yeah. probably intentional um, because Susan Stranded didn't want to do shop treatment. No. She was like, no, you're right. Uh, but she was replaced by another slave queen. Oh, she absolutely was. Uh, and then we see uh, old man John looking in the mirror. And you just see at that point how much he is aged even more. Um, and then Sarah, he bumps into Sarah. Um, and he's basically like, oh, no, nah, I thought this one going. And then when she sees how much he's aged, then she's interested. She's like, oh, shit, yeah. Um, maybe we should talk about this. Yeah. Um 
And then we get a stylish roller skating scene to uh, Fun Time by Iggy Pop. And uh, John stabs the uh, roller skater and just kind of leaves. Which is a bit of a random scene, really, because that doesn't really... He kind of leaves the roller skater to live. Yeah. Um, so what I sort of gathered throughout the film, I don't know if it's apparent at this point in the film, is that they have to feed yeah. once a week. Is it once a week? I think it's once a week, yeah. Feed once a week, but they have to sleep. Is it uh, for a certain amount of time? Mm. I, I can't remember. Please forgive me. Um, so because John hasn't been sleeping... Yeah. he. That's why he's deteriorating so fast. Yeah. And I think he thinks that if he feeds more, it's going to help him. So it's quite specific. To live forever, it's quite specific what they need to do. And, you know, if anyone out there who struggled to sleep at night, you know, if your life depended on it, bloody hell, it, it would, you know... Yeah. That's why you're aging so quick. Uh, so, yeah, that's quite an interesting concept. It's it quite, is. That's it different is. to vampire lore. Yeah. Right? And that's why it is, this film sort of turns genre tropes on its, on its head. Because, yes, they have to feed on blood... But also, you gotta get a good night's sleep. Yes. Or you're gonna die. Um. Then we <laughs> a lesson for us all. <laughs> well, John goes back to the house, and Alice turns up uh, to give Miriam some sheet music, and um, and John asks her to play vi- violin for him. She she kind of recognizes him and asks maybe if it's John's dad, um, because obviously at this stage he is way gone, uh, now and he, he is really really old. Uh, and he actually starts to look like Grandpa from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He really does. He like, genuinely does. He looks exactly like he him. Does. Yeah. Um, and it, it honestly, this is this is where the uh, the fear factor of film comes in because it looks fucking terrifying. Um, it's good effects. It, it, it good really effects. is. And uh, so she's playing vi- uh, violin for him, and uh, he grabs her from uh, grabs her neck, and he uh, kills her. And I was quite surprised by this because I thought we were going to get Alice throughout the whole film. Yeah. Um, so this sort of shows his real desperation. Yeah. Um, the fact that he would kill a child, and a, especially a child that they're so close to. Um, that he's so desperate to live and to carry on that he would kill and essentially, you know, drink the blood of this child um seemingly it's it is all in vain and um pointless yeah doesn't happen but it's it's a definite low point for him and i I think i think it's probably at that point where he realizes that you know it's it's his time and he he will die yeah and that is um, his lowest point yeah because then after this we get miriam coming back and uh she obviously sees the stays in They, they have a kiss despite him looking all gross and uh and uh, he just keeps asking her to kill him, but uh, she just obviously keeps saying she can't. Uh, then he re- she realizes that he's killed Alice, and she still doesn't want to kill him. Um, he has to fall down some stairs into the basement, and I think that's at the point when she realizes as well. She's like, "Yeah, shit, this is it. He's definitely uh, a goner." So she um, she takes him upstairs in the lift because their house is so fancy as a fucking lift. It does. Uh, she takes him up to the attic. Um, carries him into the total eclipse of the, of the heart room. This is the bit where I realised how much it was like that music <laughs> yeah. video. It's like a, a 
clear, bright light shining just in the middle of the room. And there's doves there. And you can't hear any wind, but these fucking sheer curtains are going absolutely crazy. It's, yeah, it's so stylish. Um, Did we say this is before... Total Eclipse of the Heart. before Total oh, Eclipse of the Heart. There we go. I really hope sure this it was. is, uh, this is responsible for that. Total Eclipse of the Heart was a year after this. So it probably was, the music video probably was uh, highly influenced by this film. Yeah. Uh, so she puts him in a coffin um, and uh, puts him beside some other coffins and tells them all to be kind to him. So... What we're not aware at this point, which we find out later on, is actually all these uh, the coffins are actually her exes. No, we do realise that. Do we? Yeah. So, um, what referenced earlier when um, uh, John and Miriam were, were talking, and it was just after he'd lost his hair. Oh, okay. He was starting to lose his hair. Uh, and he asks her, you know, who's going to take his place after he's gone? Um, so, and then they're talking and he says, you know, how was it for the others when they died? Okay, that how makes long sense. Yeah, did that makes take? sense. How did they feel? You yeah. know, um, and she, she's trying to partly explain, but she's quite upset by the whole notion of it. So uh, the whole idea is that Miriam is completely eternal. Mm. So she is immortal and she gives this power to live you know forever to her lovers or her companions or whatnot because she dates back to the egyptian times yeah whereas john and her met you know in the 1700s you know 200 years previous um so that's the whole idea and obviously they have to stick to these rules because she's given them part of her immortality, but they have to stick to the rules. John obviously hasn't been sleeping. It's his time to die. Seemingly that's happened to all the other people. And it is referenced women as well as men. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that's partly why I'm not sure why this is really an LGBT film because it's kind of, she's, She's given these people, you know, this ability because it's a, a love, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, well, maybe it is, actually. Maybe I've talked myself into thinking it is an LGBT it, oh, it, it absolutely, It really is. It, it absolutely is. Because I don't, I, I, I don't necessarily want to say just because there's lesbians in it, it automatically becomes an LGBT film. No, but I think... Because that's not the main point of the film. For me, an LGBT film deals with, you know, themes that the LGBT... God, it's hard to keep saying that. LGBT community has to deal with. Yeah, but I think this film could be interpreted that way. Yeah, maybe. The whole idea of vampirism, you know, could be taken that way. Like, I mean, The Lost Boys is a very, um, very gay film, if you look in, if you look into it enough. And I think Attack of the Queer Wolf, they covered this film as well, and they, they very much um, covered that point on their um, podcast as well, about mm-hmm. how, um, you know, this could be interpreted as a as a way of looking at homosexuality. 
and uh, particularly with um, with the eighties, I'm not sure whether this is at that stage, but you had the uh, AIDS pandemic as well. Yes, and absolutely. Obviously, I was thinking that, and obviously, you know, the exchanging of blood between these characters exactly um, is a very strong statement to make within that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I I think all of that adds up to why this is an LGBT film. And uh, I yeah, and you know, I can't really see a reason as to why it would be embraced by the LGBT community because, I mean, uh, it's yeah. I just I think it's a a decent LGBT film. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's negative um, towards it. No, not at all. No, because no, even because though they're vampires, it's... these aren't necessarily villains. They're not bad characters. They're just, I mean, they obviously do go around killing people, but it's kind of portrayed in a way that they have to survive. They're not really portrayed as bad guys in the film. Yeah, but... Apart from maybe John. John, when he kills Alice. Yes. He's portrayed as more of a horror character, but once he's out of the picture, it's kind of, that's when I think it turns into more of a love story then, between Miriam and Sarah. Uh, Yeah, to a certain degree. I think, ultimately, you know... um, Miriam is still a villain. I would still call her a villain mm. because she kills innocent people to live and for her own, you know, sake. Mm. The, the very selfish thing to do. Taking from one person something that you feel that you're more entitled to, that's villainous True. to me. True. And it, it eventually that leads to the end of the film. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so reluctant to give spoilers because I don't. You're listening to the argument. So eventually, um, the Susan Strandon character, Doctor Sarah Roberts, decides that she can't live that life. Um, So I think she's probably she's probably our hero in this piece. Yeah. Because obviously every film has to have yeah you know protagonists and antagonists. Yeah, uh, she she's at the heart of the piece. Yeah, and, and still she's a bisexual character, and she's uh, yeah, yeah, and, and she's a protagonist. So this is what I'm saying. Is also this is why I think it's good. Yeah, but yeah. So um, Sarah actually arrives at Miriam's house uh, after John's put in a coffin, and uh, she gives Miriam a number, and then uh, she goes off, and a lieutenant arrives looking for Alice. And then we get some hard cuts uh, interwining between Sarah strutting down the road. She's absolutely strutting. Absolutely <laughs> strutting down the road. Um, looking amazing. Uh, the lieutenant speaking to Miriam and a truck heading towards uh, the camera. Uh, the truck eventually nearly runs over Sarah. She's not paying attention because guess what she's doing? She's smoking. She's lighting a cig. <laughs> she's lighting a cig. And, um, and yeah, then there's a little conversation about uh, Alice. Uh, doesn't really go anywhere. It it comes back at the end, though. Yeah, um, this is um, he's played by Dan Hedaya, mm-hmm. um, who I recognise as uh, the dad from Clueless. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm sure he's been in other films, but that's where I recognise him from. Oh, with a, a fierce monobrow on the go. <laughs> Well, Sarah is uh, in bed that same night and she's uh, having a cry, but she it's uh, cutting between that and Miriam, who's playing piano and also crying. So it's showing that sort of connection there between them. Um, 
that romantic connection, I'd say, you know, there's something there um, connecting the two already. Yeah, but I, I think it's Miriam herself. I, I think this is all Miriam and her... Um, I don't know if she has any sort of abilities. Yeah, it, it kind of appears that way. Yeah, but her sort of um, sensuality is sort of yeah. embedded itself within Sarah because I, I, don't, I don't think for a second that Dr. Sarah was a bisexual before meeting Miriam. Mm. I, I don't feel that way. You know, she's engaged to a man um, and, and all that business. So I, I, I don't know. Um, but, but then this also brings I me back... I feel like it's Miriam's allure, whether that be something slightly supernatural or not. Yeah, which is what brings me back to the connection between this and Candyman. Because um, it's, yes. it's very much similar to how Candyman yes. communicates with uh, Virginia Madison. Candyman is in, you know, Virginia, Virginia Madison's, Madison's head, head yeah. where and Miriam is in Sarah's head. Yeah. Um, well... Uh, Sarah goes back to uh, to Miriam's house the next day, and uh, she has a has a bit of a nose around. Um, finds a statue that Miriam thinks looks like her. I think it's a little insulting. The statue's nose is far too big to be seen Absolutely. Sarandon. No, Miriam and Catherine Deneuve. Yeah, she said that it looks like Susan Sarandon. No, no, Susan. So Doctor Sarah says that the statue, the bust. Mm. looks like Miriam. Well, either way, it looks like fucking neither of them. That nose is far too big. Yeah, but I feel like it actually is a bust of her. Yeah, because she's so old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That is a bust of her. Mm. Um, And we we get little, you know, snippets of this throughout the conversation. Mm. So, um, the the onk, uh, so Susan Sarandon, and I keep naming them the actors just do it we know you're on about it's fine I know, I know. yeah but she's a doctor she deserves to be called a doctor um but susan sarandon essentially uh, she likes the onk on uh, around catherine Deneuve's neck and catherine Deneuve's oh it's it's ancient egyptian well, yeah, it probably was. You were probably there at the time. Yeah. It's snippets like that. Yeah, and, and well, at this stage, um, you know, Sarah's a thirsty bitch. Um, not only does she, I mean, both ways, she takes a glass of sherry. Um, but she doesn't like sherry. She doesn't like sherry. Do you think sherry mm. is a metaphor for relationships with women? Maybe. Maybe. Because you don't like sherry. You know, and I, I know... I didn't, I didn't really I think about it. I know very clunky. No, no, that's, that could be But, you know, the whole idea... And, and sherry, you know, looks like blood as yeah. well. Um, particularly when it's spilt down a white T-shirt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, maybe that's a little subtle... It metaphor. is as soon as she... Yeah, as soon as she has that, because that's when she starts Beyonce flirting. Because Beyonce says later... Yeah. yeah. But you don't like sherry. Yeah. It's true. Um, so, yeah, Sarah starts asking if Miriam is lonely, she starts complimenting her onk, um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> in more ways than one, and, uh, and then she starts asking if Miriam's making a pass at her, uh, and then she spills a drink down at her, and, oh my lord, we get a, uh, a very close-up shot of, um, some icebreakers. <laughs> Yeah, it must... Well, in fairness, it must be quite cold in there. It must have been freezing. There's always a cross breeze because the curtains are always flapping. Well, it's very evident because (laughs) Susan Sarandon's nipples looks like they're about to burst out of a white T-shirt. Yeah, she's wearing quite a uh, tight white T-shirt and, yeah, 
She might as well have not been wearing it. Yeah, well, I mean, soon enough, uh, Miriam puts her feet up and uh, Sarah takes the top off anyway. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if I spill down my top, you just sort of rub it and just sort of, yeah. oh, okay, well, that's it for the rest of the day. But yeah, she decides she's going to change her top. And this leads to a very raunchy, erotic sex scene between the two of them with, you might guessed it, some blowy curtains. Yes, <laughs> yes. So there's a lot. So it's quite a prolonged it very, very, yeah. Especially uh, very for its sensual. time. There's a lot of close-ups yeah. of body parts and, and lips. And th- there's a lot of shots, you know, behind curtains, you know, sheer curtains and mm. stuff. Very blowy. Um, do you think this sex scene was necessary? Yeah. Do you think the length of this sex scene was necessary? Maybe not. But it kind of... I don't know. I just thought it was quite satisfying knowing that this was released in a film in the 80s. Yeah. Because, and quite a mainstream film as well, by all means. It was released by MGM. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a very bold move to make. And, yeah, And, and I like that. And I mean, two, two well-known actresses as well. Ve- yeah. It, sort of... I mean, it's very, that. yeah, very shocking for its time. Yeah, um, I mean, now we're a bit like... Oh. Yeah, if it was released nowadays, I don't think it'd be that necessary to be that long. But no. I think for its time it's released, I think it was a bold statement to make, you know, putting something like this out there in such a film that so many people are going to see. Um, you know, I think it's great. I think that's a real good addition to the film. Do you think that if it was two men... It may have would, been a bit different, yeah. Because if you're talking about, you know, the AIDS um, epidemic mm. at the time, yeah. that was mainly within the homosexual male community. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that if this scene was with, between two men, that it would have made its money back? I think there probably would have been more of an outrage. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think it would have made its money back. No. Yeah, yeah and... Yeah, it's true. I mean, like I said, it, it's groundbreaking enough that it's two women. But if it was two men, I don't think it would have got the reaction. No. You know, I, I think it would have been, like I said, more of an outrage. Do you think that the scene, some of it was for the titillation of the, like a straight male audience? Because that's your audience for films like this. Let's be, let's be honest, you know, this is a horror film in the 80s. Your target audience is young men, you know, who are going to watch. Do you think that maybe the... And I'm not taking anything away from the representation, you know, of, you know, two women um, having a sex scene together. You know, that's fairly groundbreaking. Um at the time, you know, it's... Uh, who? What's the studio that released the film? Is it MGM. M- MGM, yeah. an MGM film um, with a fairly decent budget uh, and some well-known people. But do, do you think that... It's for sexualising. That scene... The two characters. They knew it would be so controversial mm. but also quite titillating and therefore that... Because I, I, from what I'd heard of the film mm. before watching it, because there's a lot to the film and it's a great yeah. film, but all I'd ever heard was, "Oh, Susan Sarandon gets her boobs out," yeah, or, and there's a lesbian scene and and all that business. Do you think maybe it's the cynic in me, but that was played up 
maybe a little too much. Yes and no, because, I mean, yes, in a way that this director went on to uh, direct a lot of very masculine action films. Yeah. Um, so it kind of feels like something that, you know, someone of that sort of standard would do um, for their sort of target audience. But at the same time, was their target audience young straight men? Because nowadays, this is a very camp film. You know, this is, um, in, in a way, um, yeah. you know, like I said, it embraces the LGBT side of things and it's a romantic vampire film. Are romantic vampire films targeted towards straight men? I don't know. I don't know because... This is pre-Twilight. It is pre-Twilight, but it is still a very much a romance. A very twisted one. Yeah. But it took the romantic side of vampires and not the murder and maniac side of vampire things. So would this be... Because I don't know whether this film's audience was straight white... Uh, straight white men? That's nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's whether it's... Um, <laughs> I'm usually in debates like this. It's normally something that comes up um, <laughs> when it talk about diversity in cinema. But um, if it's young straight men, I don't know if that was target audience. Mm. for this film yeah yeah I, d- I don't think the advertising necessarily played up that part of it too no much. no because I mean David Bowie was very present in all the advertising I mean by this yeah. stage he's dead yeah you yeah. know he, it, he, he, he dies sort of yeah. halfway through the film I think much. that was the selling point um so I don't know I don't know it's it's very new wave as I well so I don't know whether it's just yeah it's, I mean, without being around in the 80s, it's hard to say. Yeah. Because, I mean, so many 80s films now are just embraced, you know, within fans of camp films, you know. It's so, it's not, yeah, it's a difficult one. Yeah, because uh, I don't feel like this would have been camp back in 1993. No, it's no. definitely quite camp now. Yeah. Seeing it. And, um, yeah, I just... Uh, for me personally, I'm not sure if there was a little bit of um, cynical sort of, oh, let's get this in there mm. and get some word of mouth out and we can get a lot of people coming in yeah. to, to watch for that scene. Yeah, You know, and plenty of fantastic films have had one scene that overshadows mm. the rest of the film, you know, that that's... Um, yeah, this is, well, this is, this is, that's very much what Jennifer's Body did. Um, I mean, you look at Jennifer's Body, that's a film that looks like it was made for gay horror fans. Mm. It's very much Mean Girls, but horror. Yeah. Um, but when that was released, all the marketing was mainly on Megan Fox being over-sexualized and that one lesbian scene. Yeah. So, I mean, I see where you're coming from. It could be yeah. very much the case of the same sort of thing. This looks like it was made for a more camp audience. But ag- again, you know, word of mouth could have been about that one scene. Yeah. So And that scene's definitely filmed, I feel like it's commercial. Yeah. Like, massively. If you, you see any sort of advertisement during that period... Uh, very sort of um, the one that comes to mind. I know this sounds quite silly. Do you remember the the, the flake adverts? Mm. There was like the lady in the bath sensually yeah. eating a flake. Oh um, yeah, <clears throat> and I, that's what I was getting. And, and the music, the classical music playing. Um, it it's it's a well known piece of mm. classical music, 
but uh, to me it it was really giving off um like fashion Mm. advert or you know something from Vogue and well, what's interesting just, now you mentioned this with you know so a, a very sexual nature or well, what's interesting yeah. now you mentioned this is that the same piece of classical music was used in the lesbian scene of Piranha 3D and that was very much not for the LGBT community that film that that scene was very much to get people to go and watch it exactly so that's oh, that the one with the underwater yeah yeah and the underwater sex oh, scene that was stylized wow. and put to that music so now I can see where that came from now yeah so that's very very interesting but I do and I think maybe it is an idea for for future you know for us to to look at and I'm sure it's been looked at plenty of times. Mm is that idea that, you know, is it insulting to put, you know, a lesbian sex scene or mm. a lesbian relationship within a film purely to titillate a straight male audience? Yeah. And, you know, it's... Because these aren't gay actresses. No, you no. know, they're, they're not. You know, and that's a whole yeah. other issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excuse me, I don't, I don't wish, but it's a very interesting one, and and, and yeah, for for me personally, it would be nice to read up on it. If anybody else has any opinions, well, we have. On that, we we always love hearing your opinions. Yeah. On, on stuff like that. Well, we have Pride Month coming up soon, when we'll be talking about stuff like that some more. Yeah. This would have been a perfect film for Pride Month. I didn't even consider it I mean I, I struggled enough to find a film for this week for romantic horror and this just came to mind but, it, but there's plenty of horror films do it as well you know I know that Piranha 3D is pretty much a comedy yeah and that that was but very much but they make much... fun of it in, is it Freddy versus Jason uh, which one is it Freddy versus J- with the simulation of Jason so, oh it Jason, uh, X? Jason X Jason X when you've got the two topless yeah. women kissing and mm. like, ooh yeah, well, during that, so. that was a very different era. Once you get into the early 2000s, it was very much around that time was just lesbians for sexualising women for yeah. straight men. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that happened very often. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so back to the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, during this sex scene, um, Miriam bites uh, Sarah... We get a little bit of blood. Don't get a little we? bit of blood, and then we cut to uh, some steak being cut. Rather rare, is it? Very, very rare, rare. Very rare, rare steak. steak. <laughs> very, very rare. Very rare. Um, and uh, it's Sarah and her husband, or not husband, her boyfriend Tom having dinner. Uh, and Tom's a bit of a dick. He's, um, I mean, he's got every right to be. She well, did disappear for three hours. He's just very suspicious of yeah. what happened because she's acting a bit weird. She's ordered two meals that she hasn't touched because she's not hungry. Mm. And um, so here's the part where we're like, oh, okay, this bitch is a vampire now. Yeah. You know, this is where we're like, oh, okay, so she's, she's hungry. So that's why she's ordered the food, but she ain't hungry for steak or clams. No. Um, she's hungry for a bit of human blood. Yes. And uh, after they have a bit of an argument... And, yeah, because uh, he's, he's rightly suspicious that she yeah. spent three hours... Well, she has the necklace, doesn't she? She yeah. has she she's has been the given a necklace by this woman mm. that she's only just met, and now she's acting weird. You know, you would be suspicious. So they take her to the doctors because she's not feeling too good. Well, all um, she can think about... No, excuse me. Just whilst he's talking, 
is that all she can think about is nude swimming. With yeah, there's a bit of naked swimming. <laughs> yeah. um, intercut with... Uh, <laughs> now that's Piranha 3D. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, if they just swap the music around from those two scenes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so then uh, she goes to the doctors that she works with uh, and Charlie, um, the doctor that she and Tom works with, is looking into her blood. Um, she's ravenous but she can't eat is what he says yes and she says I need a cigarette yeah essentially yeah yeah so it's not human blood um, that you know is fighting with her blood cells Uh, they find the bite mark and uh, Sarah's not having none of this so she goes to question Miriam about what the fuck's going on and um, she's wearing a very fancy green coat in this scene. She is, actually. It took me so by surprise, to be fair. Yeah. I'm like, where'd she get this coat from? Fantastic. Green um, Mac, isn't it? It's yeah. Like a trench coat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they have a bit of an argument. Miriam tells her that she gave uh, some everlasting life. It was a kind gift. Um, they have a bit of an angle. She throws it to the floor. Yeah, so Miriam's kind of like super strong, really. Yeah, yeah she throws her across the room. Yeah, Sarah, Sarah tells her she thinks she's crazy and storms out, um, goes to the phone booth, tries to get out of Tom, but she can't. And at this point, we see a cameo from Willem Dafoe. We do. Willem Dafoe at a phone booth um, asking, how about it, huh? Yeah. Like... So I don't know what he wanted. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then uh, his friend calls her a crazy fucking junkie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah. I suppose maybe, you know, and then she she is potentially an addict, you know. Yeah, it's, it's very much a metaphor for addiction as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we've, we've focused a lot on the LGBT side of things, but it is very, very much um, a film about addiction. Yeah. Um, which is why I think um, last year's uh, Bliss worked so well, is because... That was about addiction, but it was very much on the nose. Like, there, the addiction was very clear in that film. Yeah. Um, it, it was like the hunger, but with lots of drugs, basically. Yeah. This is a lot, This is more subtle yeah. in, in that sense. Yeah, this is for you to make your own mind of this film. I mean, we're saying what our interpretations of the film is, but... um. Yeah, but she's pretty much got a puncture hole on her arm. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm like... But um, uh... not just about the addiction side of things, like everything in this film, yeah. you know, there's a number of ways you can take it, so... Make your own mind, but again, you know, let us know what you think this film's trying to say. Um, so she goes back to Miriam's house, and uh, Miriam gives us a bit of Julia from Hellraiser, finds a guy, brings him back to the house. That see, that's the, this is where I thought the Hellraiser yeah, very Hellraiser goes to pick up a a, a douchebag. <laughs> yeah, we're meant to think he's a douchebag from a club. Um, she's looking very saucy. Takes him back. Yeah, he gets a bit too nosy. Um, starts going around in the lift, having a look around the house, and uh, Miriam slits his throat with her nails. No. Is it not with her nails? No. It kind of looked like it. No, it was the onk. Was it with the onk? Yeah. Oh, I did see the onk. But you know what the onk does? It, I the know, onk yeah, is yeah, a knife. Yeah. She takes the, the, the yeah. top off and it, it's a knife. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Knife. I know that, but I, I thought it was her nails. No. Um, it's like, oh, you haven't seen Cruel Intentions. No. Um, don't spoil cruel intentions for me. But you don't kill anyone in cruel intentions. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it's like uh, Catherine's cross in uh, cruel intentions, where she keeps all her cocaine. Okay. So um, <laughs> Miriam uh, starts having a, a bit of a snack on the guy, um, and Tom turns up at the house, 
uh, Miriam lets him in and he goes and finds Sarah in the bedroom. Sarah looks like shit. Yeah. She's sweaty. She, she's, what's she doing on the floor? She's, she's having a breakdown on the floor. She yeah. tries telling him to go, get out of there. And, uh, she knows what she, she yeah, needs. She knows. And she's scared that she's going to do it to him. Yeah. And, spoiler alert, she does. Uh, well, we think she does. I mean, she comes down with blood around her mouth. He's the only other person up there. Yeah, so. pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So that is, uh, that's Tom dead. Um, and then uh, after this, Miriam's playing a bit of piano. Uh, Sarah walks into the room with the blood around her mouth. And uh, Miriam tells Sarah she'll live forever. They have another chat about that. They have a kiss. But then, in a... Unexpected turn of events. I definitely didn't see this coming. Uh, Sarah stabs herself yes. with the uh, with the onk. Yeah. So, um, at the, just before this point, Miriam has a little flashback to ancient Egypt. Yeah, she does. I don't yeah. really get why. That yeah, was that was a there. bit random. That was a little bit random. And probably really... one of her many lovers. Yeah. Um, she looked great as an ancient Egyptian though. Um. So yeah. So, Miriam, very much like John, mm. is at her lowest point. She just. It didn't take her 200 years to get there. Um, she's very much at her lowest point. She's just killed the man she loves so that she can feed on his blood. And I think she's... Addiction hasn't... It's hit her hard because yeah. she's she's hurt the people that she loves mm. because of this addiction. And, and I've never really had to deal with addiction, but I'm assuming it's very much sort of a similar you you know mm. when you're so low it hurts the people around you yeah. and she can't deal with it and she's a bit like if if this is how I'm gonna have to be and she's gonna be stuck with this Miriam bitch for about 200 years as well mm-hmm. and she barely knows her <laughs> so she's just a bit like do you know what I'd rather just die I'll kill myself now and end you know what will become an an excruciating pain because yeah. the, the guilt she would feel mm. you know John John was seen as quite um, I don't know if this is a word but remorseless mm. he he did yeah he couldn't care less about the killing and not really yeah. you know that was a means to an end they quite enjoyed it as you mm. saw at the beginning of the film yeah um, whereas Sarah doesn't enjoy it She's, no. this is, you know, this is too much. This isn't how she wants to live the rest of her yeah. life. Even if she does get to live forever, it, at what cost? It's at the cost of, you know, potentially thousands of other lives. Yeah, really. absolutely. And and Susan Sarandon herself has said that this, is, this scene is her overcoming addiction. Yeah. Um, you know, getting rid of it. And um, in a very tragic way. Yeah, in a very tragic way. She's eventually way. a very tragic character because of it. Yeah. But that is, you know, her way. And it, it's why that little scene at the end is a bit. It, it's it's a why it's pointless. Disappointing. Yeah. yeah, it is. Um, Miriam takes Sarah to the total eclipse of the heart room, and uh, <laughs> the room starts tilting. And then this is when you get your fucking 1960s, 1950s hammer style. Um, Rotting corpses coming out of the grave, like yeah. I mean, out of their uh, coffins. I thought this scene was so great for horror. Oh my god, I loved, I it loved this scene, and it's so, so different to what we'd seen before. Yeah, 
And even the score changes. Yeah. And before this, you get very synthy, um, atmospheric. Classical as well. Yeah, classical, classical music. music. Um, you know, you had your Iggy Pop song as well and Bauhaus at the start. But then as soon as this scene happens, the score dramatically changes. It's something you would hear in a film from the 60s. Something you would hear from a film in the late 50s. Yeah. Um, that's similar to a monster or zombie film. Um, and then, again, the makeup is very much... Um, hammer horror. Um, oh, I do you know. I thought they looked like uh, Fulci style. Fulci, zombies. yeah, even Fulci zombies. Very much um, Fulci style zombies. Yeah, it, it's incredible. It's such a great scene. They all come out of the coffins. All of her ex lovers, um, and uh, they all surround her. The doves start going fucking crazy. Yeah, uh, and Miriam for the second. <laughs> Second Valentine's film where this has happened, she falls from the top floor of her uh, of, of the uh, of her house and uh, goes down the stairways, uh, hits the ground, and then she starts aging rapidly in the same way that David Bowie would have, but in a lot more uh, in your face way. Yeah. Um, and then everybody, all the corpses, they all start rotting uh, after they look down at her, and uh, and that's the end of uh, Miriam. Yeah, this is great. So you think. And so it should have been originally. Uh, the lieutenant arrives to follow up, um, you know, what happened with uh, Alice. Uh, and the estate agent's in there tells her that the uh, occupants of the place have died. Uh, and that's where it should have ended originally. But instead, we get a bonus scene, which is quite weird, uh, of Susan Sarandon, um, of Sarah and Miriam. They have a kiss. We think it's John sitting on the yeah, sofa, they're, maybe. They're in some sort of flat, and it's very brightly lit. Yeah, which is weird. For and this a film looks like London. This this this, this looks look like, like London. London, very much so. Um, but for a film that's so darkly lit yeah. throughout the whole thing, um, it the, the the lighting reminded me very much of Suspiria. Yeah, where it would just be one key color. It's true through the whole thing, yeah. and, and you know no one can switch a fucking light on. Doesn't even have a light bulb. Mm. Uh, but this last scene is very much uh, a London flat. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't change my enjoyment of the film. But no, at the same time, it doesn't it. need to be there. Because I just sort of sat here and was like, well... Yeah, and Sarah's mean? just like staring over this, over London. Clearly. Yeah, she's just staring over um, London from a, and there's like, a balcony. But what's weird is she kisses Marion, but it kind of sounds like Marion's trapped in a coffin, screaming out for help. Yeah. It's it really a nonsensical ending. It made no sense. And if it was for a sequel, then I don't know where they would have went with that sequel after that. You yeah. Know? So, and it just... In the context of that last scene where Dr. Sarah kills herself to end her addiction. Yeah, it just defeats the purpose of it. It defeats the purpose of yeah. it because if she's still going to be in cahoots with Miriam and John, mm. what does that even mean then? Is she still yeah. addicted? You know, where are they? What yeah, and it, it, defeats, it defeats the law as well that the film had created about, um, you know, the aging and everything because, I mean, exactly. if that was the case, then why didn't John come straight back? after uh you know his death scene and look yeah. like he did before yeah it, it's just, yeah it's a messy very messy ending that should not have been put no, there no it shouldn't have been so it's fuck you mgm thank but you very much for thing. that and you know we've said it before that sometimes the studios do get too involved in films and yeah it does ruin the enjoyment a little bit yeah i mean if you ever watch it just after you know dan hedaya the uh Detective discovers the pod, or I just switch it off. Yeah, just turn it off. <laughs> Do yourself a favour. Yeah. But I am excited to see where to go with the sequel. Um, 
I honestly, I, I love this film so much. Uh, solid five stars for me. I just, yeah, I, I think the style, everything about it was just fantastic. One of my new favourite vampire films. Um, yeah, it's just brilliant. Yeah, really, I, really I loved the, I really enjoyed the film. Um, I was saying to Gary, though, I, I think it teetered on the edge of style over substance at some points. Um, but as a whole film it was really enjoyable to watch and brings up some really good ideas and some you know this hasn't been a particularly funny podcast i do apologize for no that. And, and that's the thing we, we've always said masterpieces and trash to pieces and sometimes you're going to have serious episodes like this like yeah. our science of the lambs one um you know where we bring up themes and interesting yeah. you know discussions and you know, I'm I'm certainly no expert on this film, but these are my ideas yeah. from one watch, and, and it, you know, it's the fact that this film can bring up those ideas, and I can sit here and talk about what things mean, and you know, it means it's a good film. Yeah, it's doing what it needs to do. Um, Absolutely. You know, it it isn't. Not all films need to be brainless humor. You know, I enjoy sitting and watching a, a brainless film. It's great. It's it's a lot of fun, but sometimes I like to be intellectually stimulated, mm. and, and this film did that, so yeah. well done. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going on a bit of a, a segue about um, serious episodes. The next two weeks, we've got two more fucking good films. We have. We have. Women in Horror Month for the next two weeks. Oh, we have. Because obviously, I mean, with February, you it's Women in Horror Month, it's LGBT History Month, uh, it's I believe it's Black History Month. I believe, um, yeah, I believe it's so. um, it's it's also obviously Valentine's Day. So we want to split it up as much as we can. I mean, I'm sure we will touch on uh, African American cinema a little later in the year at some point. Um, in regards to Black History Month, uh, obviously we're going to be doing a whole month for Pride uh, in June. Uh, so we thought we'd split February up into uh, Valentine's and Women in Horror. So next week is your week for Women in Horror, and what are we talking about? Uh, Carrie. <laughs> yes, it is Carrie. You got sorry, it right. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. This is extremely rude of me. But Black History Month is February in the United States. Oh, okay. So whereas in, the, in the United Kingdom, it's October. I I, oh. I knew it wasn't. Feb- I, in my head, I was like, no, I I don't think they're the same. Okay, so we. So. I mean, in October we obviously have uh, the Halloween franchise, but we are gonna. We'll have to make a point to set some other time aside I for now. Because so. there's a lot to be discussed with there that. There are some fantastic, uh, you know, African American horror films. Yeah. Um. But yes. So. Sorry. My yes. sincerest apologies. Next week we're going to be talking about Carrie, the Brian De Palma masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, and it, this, I mean, it's your choice, and it's a very good choice for women in horror because there's I a think you lot. see a little bit of every every kind every, of woman. Yeah. It's definitely a film about women. Yeah, absolutely. And Sissy Spacek is one of my favorite women. It, you know, um, Gary knows this. One of my favorite actresses. I fucking love this film. I, you know, it's entertaining. It's food for four. It's amazing. I yes. cannot wait. Love it. Love this film. Yeah, absolutely. And the week after, I'm going to have to put a poll out, actually, because I'm stuck between two films. I don't know which one I want. It's definitely going to be either Jennifer's Body or Evil Dead, the 2013 reboot slash sequel. 
because uh, both of these again it's a remake fuck off it's not a remake <laughs> both of these are very much um, you know female focused horror films uh, and again they have different types of representation of female in them uh, uh, so yeah I'm going to put a poll out let you guys decide which one we do and uh, so yeah so that's our next two weeks schedule yes. two more good films and then I'm sure we'll be going back to shit after yeah yeah I think we'll get fed up with talking about good films yeah but then uh, I think of a real shitty film to watch so yes as always if you're listening on iTunes rate, review and subscribe anything else like and follow uh, social media with Horror Court Trash over on uh, Facebook and Instagram Horror Court Trash on Twitter um uh, we had a message actually about this. I can't remember the user's name on Twitter, and um, because obviously I put on that we hadn't seen this, and they said it was a cult classic. It's fantastic film. You were absolutely right. We fucking loved it. Uh, I'm on social media. Gas Cruz nice two on Twitter. Gasmo two hundred five on Instagram, and dead at Gas ninety two on Letterboxd. I am Chris Barker eight two three on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. If you interact with me more, I might actually post some shit once in a while. That'd be nice. So check me out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yes, so we will see you the same time, same place next week. Bye.